0: So, I have a friend and colleague named Karin Anderson who serves in Rochester, in our UU congregation in Rochester, New York. She tells a story that at one point in her life she was living in Madison, Wisconsin, and she took a trip to China. And before she left, the man that she was married to at the time in Madison gave her a a couple hundred extra dollars. And said, I want you to do this specific one thing for me while you are in China. He was a real big fan and devotee of the medicinal herb ginseng. He said, I want you to go to China while you're there. I want you to get me the best ginseng that is there. That you can find in the entire country. I want you to get it for me. Here's a couple hundred dollars. I want that. So Karin goes on her way. She doesn't speak any Chinese, but she has a friend with her who can translate for her. And she's in, I think, uh, Shanghai. And she goes down this... Narrow little streets where no other tourists are, and she finds this herbalist, and she and her friend go in, and she has the friend translate, would you please give me your best ginseng? He goes to a canister right on the counter, right there. Karen says, no, 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 tell him in Chinese, no, 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 not that stuff. You know, it's like if it was a drink. She didn't want a rail drink, she wanted a top shelf, you know, back behind the bar there. You know, she wanted the good stuff. And her friend translated this in Chinese. The guy leaves the counter, goes back, takes five minutes to come back, brings out a little special embroidered box, takes a key, opens up that box. Out of the box comes wrapping, very ornate that's tied up. He takes it out, sets it on the counter, unwraps it, and then unfurls all the way down the counter, all the way until they get this point, there's this one single root sitting there says in Chinese to the friend who can translate, this is the best that we have. Karin picks it up and looks at it, how much, translates. $35 an ounce. Expensive stuff. She says, okay, this is what those couple hundred extra dollars were for. I'm going to purchase this. And she asks the friend, just because she's curious, would you ask him, where's this from? How exotic is this? Where's it from? And the friend asks, and upon hearing the response from the herbalist, Her friend starts to laugh. It's from Janesville, Wisconsin. (laughs) 35 miles from Madison, Wisconsin. The moral of this story is kind of an obvious one. We don't have to go to faraway places or go to faraway lengths to know the value of what might very well be close by and close at hand. The movie for this morning, Spiritual Cinema, Avatar, is about a faraway world with a message that hits very close to our home, especially, especially this morning. Now, in my opinion, Avatar is very, very far from a truly great movie, not by a long shot. It suffers, in my opinion, from the very same thing that every James Cameron movie has ever suffered from The man cannot write his way out of a paper bag. I mean, literally at one point during the movie, I closed my eyes, especially during the romantic scene, the parts that weren't in the language that I couldn't get. I closed my eyes and all of a sudden I was in a different place and I knew that different place. I was with Jack and Rose (laughs) on the decks of the Titanic. They were interchangeable pieces of dialogue almost. Now, James Cameron has a great sense of place visually, but he has an absolutely tin ear for language in particular and specific context. The movie is great looking. It is said that James Cameron conceived it over 20 years ago, but he knew that he didn't have the technology available yet to realize his vision, and so he waited. He waited until that moment that his vision could be made real. The world that he conjures, this faraway place, is incredibly enchanting. It is enchanting both to the people in our position who look at it, you saw it in 3D, almost being immersed within it, and it's enchanting to the people within the movie who are visiting for the first time, at least those with eyes to see. But the plot, as others have said, I wish I would have said this originally, but I didn't, it's basically just dances with wolves in outer space. (laughs) It's the same exact plot. It is. It's about an imperialistic colonial power sending one of their own behind enemy lines who eventually falls in love spiritually, culturally, and romantically in such a way that he decides to switch sides. He decides to fight for the other team. The other team in this place being the Navi people of the land of Pandora. They are spiritually in tune and interdependent with their world and with the land itself. This is direct contrast to the earthlings. They are out to pillage the land, even to commit genocide, if that is what necessary, what they deem is necessary, in order to get this unbelievably rich fuel source that will help them back on earth. And I kid you not, the name of this fuel source, if you remember it, you're joking already, you're laughing already, Unobtainium. (laughs) Come on, let's try a little bit. That laughable name aside, that quest for fuel and the moral, the ecological, the spiritual, the personal costs of that quest, that I think make Avatar the movie of our moment and the movie of our time. I like to think of movies in terms of, you know, the movie of the year, the movie of the moment. This past year was The Hurt Locker. Finally, Oscar recognition for the first female director to win that award, making a movie about scarred men, scarred in battle and scarred as they return home. It was up in the air about the many, many economic losses in our time and that deeper search for connections that matter beyond just the superficial up in the air kind of life. But I think, ultimately, it is Avatar that will be the movie of our moment and the movie of our age. It is because, with all of us with eyes to see and ears to hear, it is because our world, this day, this morning, it is very far from an enchanting place. The why is what we know. It is the BP oil disaster. I don't like to say spill <laughs> That makes it seem a little safer It's a disaster It's an oil explosion that cost 11 people their lives Ultimately billions in livelihood and tourism dollars lost An entire fishing industry potentially ruined for decades to come And those devastated ecosystems Fiction and reality collided this past week Some of you might know When the government actually called in James Cameron to consult As an idea About how they might be a little bit more creative about capping that gushing broken well. BP said they didn't really have time for James Cameron. Well, at any point, let's get some of the best minds together and figure if we can do something. There are so many ways to index and count the nature of this disaster. There's one particular way that I like that for me really brings it home in ways not just in terms of gallons or in terms of barrels or volume that way. The spill... The gusher, the geyser, is depositing the equivalent of 22,000 cars a day into the ocean. We have out there maybe 50, maybe 75 cars. Imagine if we just took these out and decided to put them in the brandy wine. Imagine how horrible that would be. 22,000 of those every day into the gulf. A fairly conservative estimate says that if they are actually able to cap this well, this broken well on the 1st of August, hopefully it might be before, but there's very good chances it might be after, that the ultimate cost will be 2.6 million barrels of oil dumped into the sea when it's all said and done. This past Sunday, a week ago, today, there was a piece in the New York Times op-ed Dr. Sujansaw, who's the director of something called the Marine Environmental Research Institute, and she just didn't want to study it from afar. She wanted to see the spill, feel the oil up close, and so she took a dive into that polluted water off the coast of Louisiana. She put on her full-body wetsuit and rubbed Vaseline all over the parts of herself that were exposed because oil burns. It burns all skin, all feathers. She dove in. And what she saw terrified her and saddened her. She saw the little fish, the herring, the little fish eating. Those little globs of oil become tar when they wash up. The mixture of the oil and the dispersant corexits that is sprayed onto the slick She knows that this spells doom potentially for the larger fish, for the cobia and the amberjack, the dolphins, the whales, because she knows the truth of interdependence, which is that if you disrupt and sicken one part of the food supply, it will go all throughout that great chain of being. Those are just some of the facts, and I know that you know many of them. I want to show you right now just some of the images that stick with me. If you show that first one, that is... I'm told the muddy brown from that is the oil mixed with the dispersant, which of course has its own costs, if you show the next one. Some of that's starting to wash up into some of those tidal marshes and pools, that delicate ecosystem that shelters, keeps, and sustains so many forms of life, including human life as well with the fisheries. Next one. You see those bags of tar being lifted up, taken from the sand. We see the cost in this next picture. We see a brown pelican, one of the lucky ones who was able to be saved, able to be rescued, and is getting a well-needed, well-deserved bath and may be able to fly again. Not so lucky the next one. A little guy who is not going to make it. It's not easy to look at that. But I'm going to ask us to look at that and keep that up there just for a second. All because of oil and our absolute need for it. Just like that oil can't wash away, can't just go away, there is a moral imperative for all of us this morning not to scrub our memories clean, not to wipe our eyes away or our ears corked so we don't have to deal with it. The spill has spilled far and wide and has spilled all over us. This raises fundamental questions, fundamental religious, spiritual questions about how we choose to care for this creation. Some of the oldest frames of reference in the Western religious world. Is it stewardship? Were we given this world as a gift that we are to care for knowing that our lives depend on it or Are we to choose domination? Domination which says it is ours to use only as we would wish. It is nothing good in and of itself. It is only the good that we put it to that counts. We hear in that nauseating phrase, drill baby drill. The war cry of the school of domination. But there is a whole other spiritual tradition as well. There are two UU theologians, Rebecca Parker and Rita Nakashima Brock, who in the last four or five years of their public ministry have spent their writings and their lives talking about how we might reclaim a sense of paradise, not as something above and beyond or somewhere else, but this earthly paradise that was given to us and in fact has been part of spiritual and religious traditions all throughout. It has just been at times a minority report to the dominating school. Parker and Brock question the assumption of the world as an inherently fallen place. They see another story in our religious traditions of paradise that has always been here, of paradise that has always been calling to us and a paradise that we can see if we respond to with care, devotion and love. It is one of the reasons that we do that Tiknahot Han reading every week in our meditation. If we want to experience heaven on earth, then there is a practice of re-enchantment, a practice of cultivating our spirit so that we can experience and see and know the heaven that is right here, right now in our midst. Who could not look at that picture of the bird Or the many hundreds of others that are out there now. And not feel that in their despoiled habitat that something of paradise really has been lost. That's why the cost is so great. So I have to admit it this morning. I feel overwhelmed. I feel like I don't know exactly what to do. I know how I feel. And I also know that in this moment we are called all of us beyond feeling. Called into tough thought and diligent action. Some of you might know I just took a trip to Italy recently. Of the many things I took away from that country, and in many ways it's a mess too. I'm not trying to, not one of those American progressives who say, oh, everything in Europe is great. It's not. But, one thing I did notice gas, petroleum is incredibly expensive. And because of that, people make different choices. It's not so cheap here. And we make different choices. There is one thing that I will be listening for in the next couple of years, this election season, the next one after that. I don't expect to hear it, but I can hope. There is one most important thing that our politicians might do that could start to turn this situation, this dependence on oil around It is imposing a carbon tax for all parts of our economy that use carbon, that use petroleum, that use oil. There is extra money levied. Even some conservative economists who are not real hip on taxes say, "Okay, we might bring that in. It might do some good if at the same time we reduce income taxes or other taxes. So that's what's called revenue neutral. The idea behind this carbon tax is that different prices will spur more than anything else. Different practices. Different prices bring different practices. But it's not just about what politicians do. And it's not just what we call them to do. At the same time, I think we're called this day to go beyond sentiment. We're also called to go beyond any trace of self-righteousness. This past week, Jim Wallace, who is the editor, the main writer at Sojourners, the progressive evangelical magazine, he quoted a little interaction from many years ago with a great Christian writer, G.K. Chesterton, who was asked at one point, what's the problem with the world? And Chesterton answered very quickly, I am. We are all parts of this problem. There is an oil addiction, and I use addiction in this sense. In this sense of our relationship with oil, it is something that we have made absolutely necessary for what we believe our lives must be that ultimately does not have to be necessary for our lives. This oil, not just dependency, this oil addiction limits our choices, it limits our freedom, it gets us involved in things we otherwise might not, but for the addiction itself. All processes of recovery start with admission. With the admission of our feeling of powerlessness, of our society, our lives held in thrall to this addiction to petroleum and oil. The beginning of health in recovery starts in remembering. We remember the moment when it became apparent to us how difficult it was. We remember it and we keep it with us so that we don't just keep repeating the same thing over and over and over again. Recovery is remembering so we don't have to repeat. And so I'd ask all of you, all of us, including myself this day, who have uneasy consciences, who say, I can't look and I don't want to look online, who say it's too difficult, it's too painful, pay attention to that. Don't stick that away. Don't compartmentalize it. Don't stick it behind a wall so you're not going to see it again. Open up the door there. Recognize that is part of the way how so many of us feel right now. If the BP oil disaster truly is our moment as a culture of bottoming out, let's not lose touch with that moment. Let us pay attention to it, learn from it, so we might ultimately grow beyond it. See, if we forget this moment, if we normalize it, if it becomes just part of the new normal of our addiction to oil, then there will be another different, deeper, worse, (laughs) bottom. Someday else, some other day. And those people will blink and shudder and repeat and wonder, does this have to be as low as we can ever go? Now, if you feel like you don't know what you can do, one of the things I think is important when we feel broken ourselves, we might feel broken down. Instead of breaking down ourselves and our own lives, feeling like there's no more worth or value in them, instead of being broken down, we can start to take steps to break it down, break the problem down. From the recovery movement, one of the best little cliches I know is that when you feel overwhelmed, when you feel completely powerless, when you don't know what to do because there are so many things to do and you cannot choose a place to start and you wonder what's the point, what does it matter, what I do doesn't make a difference. Well, at that point, there is the moment where we can ask and tell ourselves... I can't do everything, but I can do the next right thing. Not everything, the next right thing. What might this next right thing look like? I think it'll look like for all of us the next moment we are on that car lot and we're asking ourselves, how is it that we will get the most bang for our buck? And perhaps we ask another question as well, too. Where's the value in my choice for this, our common earth? That would be doing the next right thing in that moment, asking those questions. The next right thing might come in the voting booth. Before we tweak that lever or decide who we are going to vote for. That we might vote for those people who encourage the better angels of our nature In relationship to our natural world. It took well, well over a century for us to become addicted to oil. And we will need it, unfortunately, for years to come. But with years, year after year, of doing many of us the next right thing, and the next right thing, and the next right thing after that... Then there will be real progress. Then there will be real change. And we will know it just comes about by one good decision after another good decision. It is one of the things woven into our DNA, into our core beliefs here at Wellsprings. That like a pebble dropped into a pool of water, we do not know how far the ripples of our actions may reach. Just start dropping your pebbles. If other people do it too, it's a ripple and a ripple, and a ripple, and enough ripples, and what do you got? A wave. It comes about through our choices how the wave of change will truly become what it is. Now, there's another layer of this to us as well, too. What do we do here at Wellsprings? What do we do as a spiritual community wanting to respond, to move from grief back to gratitude, to move beyond despair, beyond sadness, beyond hopelessness? There are small things that we can do to engage in the work of re-enchantment. The first of these is listed on your connection card. It is our spiritual retreats, a day mindfully spent in nature coming up later this month. I encourage you, if you are looking to get enchanted again with the sacred depths of nature, get reacquainted. Take that day for yourself. Find yourself moving from grief back to gratitude. Caring is the verb form of devotion. What we serve ends up being what we love, and vice versa. Take time to recognize the paradise in our midst. There's another thing, and this is new. This is not on your connection card, but I encourage you to write it in. One of our newest small bite small groups for this summer will be this it will be a circle dialogue, meeting three times, sharing, listening, and responding to this environmental disaster. Paige, raise your hand. If you're interested, talk to Paige after. Like I said, write it in. We just got this idea in the last couple days. The reason for this is this, that our isolated pain and our isolated frustration does none of us any good. Gather together so that we can move beyond if that is what you wish to do. The final and the third thing you can do is one of our most original commitments here. At Wellsprings. We've been doing it now. This will be our fourth summer. It is our commitment to work with the Maisie's Organic Farm and Conservation Center. Some of you have done this in the past. If you are really looking to do the work of reenchantment, and not just work that makes you feel better, but feeds other people and is sustainable and is local and brings foods to the market that has almost no fuel costs associated with it, that is a great choice to make. It's two hours once a month over the next few months. Take a look at some of these choices as a way that we, using our collective gifts, collective strength together, might say we can't do everything, but we can do the next right things here at Wellsprings together and be part of those ripples that become the wave that make the change. See, the thing is that real change is never imposed on us. It happens when we are motivated and accountable enough to want to be justice-seeking and accountable and compassionate enough to make different choices. Just imagine 50 years out, 100 years out, how the story of this moment may be told. When perhaps none of us are around anymore. Imagine if the story of this moment is told in such a way that this horrible moment, this devastation was the moment when everything really did start to change. There is a deeper form of wellness, of being truly at home in this world, a deeper form of wellness than just feeling good. It is the form of wellness in which real brokenness and illness can be acknowledged as well. Right now we're paying attention. We almost have to. If we turn on our computers, if we turn on the television. Right now we're paying attention. But I have to tell you that one of the things that shocked me the most, and I was nine or ten years old when this happened, and I don't have a single memory of it. This is one of the signs that as things seem to be getting worse, they're actually maybe getting better. There was the X-Talk spill. Three million barrels by the time it was over. Nine months it gushed into the same Gulf of Mexico off the coast of the country Mexico. I had no idea. I didn't know back then. I wasn't told the story growing up. It was a shock to me. Now, we're aware. Now, our ignorance is no defense. Soren Kierkegaard, the great Danish theologian, he said there is a form of despair that is worse than despair itself. He called it the despair not to be in despair. A kind of brokenness so bad that we cannot even name the fact that something is going wrong in our midst and it's all just la-di-da, la-di-da, things are okay, they'll turn out fine. Where there is real and acknowledged brokenness there can be real and acknowledged healing. This will take time and it will take patience and it will take practice and it will take diligence and it will take a perspective on our lives longer and deeper and much more far than just our own chronological lives. I love this quote from Carl Jung, a great Swiss psychologist. He said, we reach forward to our children and through their children to a future we will never see, but about which we must care. To a future we will never see, but about which we must care. Perhaps 50 years out, to 100 years out, the story of our time will be told with love. That the people who never knew us will love us. Because of the ripples in the pond that became a wave. For the destruction that we witnessed and chose not to give into despair. But instead dug down deeper into our lives and into our actions and into our hope. And that through this destruction we brought about healing. Perhaps this will be our greatest legacy. It only will be if we recognize that the healing starts now. And that the healing begins with us. Amen. May you live in blessing. Let's pray together. Spirit, whose very being is coursing through our lives and all of the earth and the earth itself, may we, with our justice seeking and our compassion, Honor this creation. May we, instead of seeking domination over it, may we hold it as good stewards, knowing that our lives, our very lives, depend upon it. May we take this moment of painful insight and transform it so we do not have to just transmit it to those who come after. We may transform it into greater mindfulness and greater practice and greater accountability. May we take this moment and transform our own discomfort, transform our own pain, and make of this moment a healing thing. Amen.